Good morning. This is in Luke 22, starting with verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said it to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Ian, for the impromptu scripture reading. If you are a junior church kid, you can leave now. There will be uh, some things planned for you on the other side of the building. Thank you. Our series has been And Then. So we looked at Peter seeing Jesus because what we expect to see is usually what we see, and what we see determines what we do. And then. We looked at Peter following Jesus because no matter how far we get from Jesus, all it takes is for us to turn around and he's always right there to begin following again. And then we looked at Peter trusting Jesus. That was last week because we find out who we are when we trust in who he is. And then we come to a point in Peter's life where he just flat out, falls on his face and fails. And then the story will continue. And that's kind of the theme of today. If people choose not to make a decision for Christ, failure is usually one of the reasons that they choose not to follow. People don't usually think that God is not good. Usually what people think instead is, I am not good. More precisely, they would say, I'm not good enough, and I never will be, and I've tried, and I've failed. And so following Jesus and doing all this religious stuff, that's just out of my reach, so thank, no thank you. And the reason that that's just nonsense today is because none of us are good enough. Did you notice how many hands went up when I, say, when I asked earlier, how many of you have failed? Every one of us have made mistakes. We are like Peter, and Peter is like us. In our text today, um, we're going to go through a lot more of text than was just read to you, but we will see Peter fail, and we will see maybe some keys that might keep us from failure, but most of all, we will see that this sequence in Peter's life will show, show us that failure is never the last word, failure is never the end. Failure is never the last word, no matter what mess we made, because God can bring a message out of our mess. Uh, Turn to Luke 22, and that's where we're going to be. It's one of the most famous snapshots of Peter's life, and the familiar scenes involve a teenage girl and and a fire and a rooster crowing, but the denial starts way before that. It starts the night before at the Passover meal in verse 13 of that chapter. 
The disciples walk into the upper room where they're going to share the Passover meal, and they believe that this is a celebration. It is a normal part of the Jewish calendar, but it is more than that for them because a week ago, Jesus rode in on a donkey to Jerusalem in triumph, and they understand that at some point, he is going to ascend the the throne of Israel, and they're going to kick the Romans out of the nation of Israel, and they're going to claim what's theirs again, and more important... um, They are going to be a part of the new administration. They are going to be the guys who get chairs and positions of power. They will be the heads of the new administration. And so this is kind of like a feast. This is kind of like a celebration before that, a pre-party, right? But Jesus knows the truth. Jesus knows that it's not that at all. He's been trying to tell his disciples that. They have not listened. He knows there's no, no, no throne just a cross. He knows that there is no campaign, there's no government takeover, just betrayal and flogging and crucifixion. And he's tried to make it clear to his disciples that the way he's going to win is actually to lose. It's not a crown, but a cross that we're after. It must happen. And he realizes this will be the last time that they will be together before the cross. And so he says to them in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And it's that last phrase that they don't get. They don't get the suffering part. They don't even hear it. And so Jesus gets very clear down in verse 21. He says, this is the way it's going to go. It's going to go south, and it's going to go south because one of you at this table is going to betray me. This isn't the party we storm, uh, a party before we storm the castle. This is the end. I will die, and it will be because somebody present right now is going to turn me in and betray me. And the turn from the story there is one that you wouldn't guess right away. Right, right away, the disciples, when they hear this word of betrayal, they begin to point fingers. Is it, is it him? Is it him? Is it him? Some of them point him at themselves. Is it, is it me? Surely it's not me. And there begins to be this dialogue. And after that, there is this dispute about who is the greatest in verse 24. And it's after Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And that, that doesn't make a lot of sense right away. But we, I think we can sort it out. I think it might have gone this way. When he says, one of you will betray me, maybe they said, oh, surely it's not me. I mean, look how close I am to Jesus. I mean, I would never do that. Oh, you're close. Well, think how I, close I am to Jesus. I mean, I was able to heal that guy. Well, you, you healed that guy, but I, I cast out that demon. I mean, I'm really close to Jesus. I'm never going to be the betrayer. And you can see that the I am better than you would have echoed around the table, followed by reasons why. And can you imagine people trumping themselves up like that? I'm so glad we've moved on in our society. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Right? Maybe the argument is about who gets to sit closest to Jesus at the meal. And if that's the argument, then Judas won the argument. It would be true of all of them to have totally forgotten Jesus' bit about the greatest being the servant of all. This argument is kind of common the first time, this is the third time they've argued about it. The first time they argued about it was a year ago. The second time was a week ago. And here's the third time. It is an old dialogue. And each time the argument immediately follows Jesus' prediction that he would suffer. 
And John, in his gospel, in chapter 13, fills in a gap for us at this point. He says, at this point where they were arguing about who sits closest to Jesus, who's the greatest, Jesus just unpretentiously gets up and he takes a towel and he takes a basin and a wash, a pitcher full of water, and he begins to go around the table and wash his disciples' feet. And the disciples were appalled that he would do this. It was a task reserved for the lowest of household servants. Nobody wanted to do this kind of a a task. They were appalled that Jesus was doing it, and yet not one of them offered to do for Jesus what he was doing for them. Peter is the one that objects most defiantly when Jesus comes to him. Why would you do such a thing? But even Peter does not offer to do for Jesus what he is doing for him. The lesson of the foot washing isn't so much about an act that we should repeat. It's about an attitude that we should have. And we may not in our day need to wash each other's feet. I mean, we have Roombas and Dysons and we wear Timberlands and Adidas and all that good stuff. But, but we still have in our world amazingly uh, mundane and distasteful tasks, right? Taking out the trash or unclogging toilets or cleaning our pet messes or calling tech support, all of those things. Nobody wants to do those things. Foot washing for us translates to saying yes to tasks that everyone else avoids because of pride, because it's against our nature to do these kind of things. Our nature is just to see ourselves. Our nature is to see our own greatness because we're better than that task. Let somebody else who isn't as good as we are, let somebody else that's lower to that task, kind of on the level of that task, do that task. But Jesus says, in my economy, I am that person. It goes against our nature. But if we don't see others and follow the lead of Jesus, then we have a recipe for failure. Failure lies in seeing only ourselves. Which is why Jesus promises great blessings to those of us who would take the time to see others, to see their needs, and to meet them. And in this moment, Peter does not. He fails to imitate Jesus. He just sees himself and he fusses while Jesus washes his feet. It's a failure, but it's not the greatest failure. It's a foreshadowing of what is to come. And we look at that scene and we think, how in the world could you be that crude? I mean, the audacity, the arrogance of Peter, how in the world is that possible? Oh, I can absolutely identify with that because that's, that's where I am. That's probably where you are too. We are Peter. We are like him. Peter is a screw-up with a loud mouth and a louder ego. And to that, a few verses down in verse 31, Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, pay attention to that in light of what we talked about last week, that Simon's name was changed to Peter, which means rock. Jesus addresses him as the old Simon because that's what he is. He says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He's asked to throw you to the wind like wheat where the dust is carried off. And that's what you are right now, Simon. You are dust. Peter shifts back to the thing that kicked off the whole discussion in the first place, the betrayal. And he says, wait a minute, I'm, I will never, 
I'm ready to go to prison and even death for you. I will never betray you. That is unimaginable to me. You know how much I'm with you. You are the king that I would give my life for. I will die for you if I have to, even if everyone else takes off on you. And he points. I never will. I never will. Failure lies in our inability to admit that we're weak. Peter's sin is the classic sin of overconfidence. I've got this. I can handle it. It's a sure thing. Virginia ran into a little bout of overconfidence this weekend, didn't they? Who are we playing again? The Retrievers. Who are they? UMBC, does that stand for United Methodist Bible College? Oh, we got this. Nope. No, you don't. Virginia came to know the truth that UMBC stands for you must be Cinderella. (laughs) Because overconfidence multiplies the possibility of failure. And that's where Peter was. And Jesus gives Peter a dose of the truth. No, you really don't love me that much right now that you would give your life. In fact, before the night is over, you're going to deny me three times. Before the rooster crows is what Mark says. Before he crows twice. You will deny me. If it was just one denial, maybe, maybe Peter, maybe that's a fluke. If it's, if it's two denials, maybe Peter can explain that away. But if it's three, in one night, in a few hours, that uncovers a problem. And Peter has a problem, and Jesus knows it. By the way, the, the rooster crow actually happened anywhere from midnight to 3 a.m. in the morning. And there was, in fact, a Roman uh, soldier watch that was nicknamed the rooster crow watch during these hours of the night because that's when the rooster would always crow. And so, fast forward to the garden from there, verse 47 of chapter 22. Judas comes in. He's leading the group of people to arrest Jesus. And he walks to Jesus. He betrays him with a kiss. And somebody in that moment pulls out a sword and goes to swinging. And we, real, we, we learn from John that that someone is Peter. Peter is on edge, so he's ready. He has one of the two swords that all of the disciples have uh, with, uh, among them, and he is going to do something. And so he, he swings, and whoever's the closest is going to get it, and the closest was the servant of the high priest. His name was Malchus. Now, nowhere in Scripture does Jesus ever teach his disciples how to fight (laughs) how to wield a sword. And so what we have here is Peter, uh, a fisherman, trying to do an impression of a Roman soldier. And he swings his sword the best he knows how, and he's probably going for the the servant's throat. And the servant realizes what's happening. This big fisherman that's kind of slow is swinging a sword, and he ducks this way, and you can see the sword just slice through his ear and lop it off, and it falls to the ground. Jesus says, this isn't why we've come. I'm not leading a rebellion. And he picks up the ear. He blows it off. He sticks it back on the guy's head. And he's, he's good. It's a miracle. Peter should have been in cuffs just for that. But there's no more evidence anymore, right? <laughs> but the evidence for Jesus still remains. And so they chain up Jesus. They take him off. And Matthew 26 tells us that all of the disciples flee. They scatter. 
But Peter doesn't go very far because he's not a coward. I mean, he was just willing to swing a sword. Moments ago, he was absolutely ready to take on this crowd of people when all the disciples had among them were two swords. It's just that now he doesn't really know what to do. And so he follows the crowd as they take Jesus away. He follows them closely, and it's a very noble move of Peter. There are good motives here. He, he, you can understand where Peter, uh, Peter was. He wants to help his king. He wants to rescue Jesus. And Scripture says that the apostle John is with him too, and these two keep out of sight, and they're ducking behind trees and dumpsters and that kind of thing, and they're sticking behind the crowd until they come to the courtyard of Caiaphas, where the trial was to take place. And John, we're not sure how, but he was known to the high priest and his people, and John was able to get Peter past the bouncer at the door that happened to be a teenage girl, (laughs) because 12-year-old teenage girls can scream really loudly, and so that's why they're posted at the door. And she looks at him and says, whoa, 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 aren't you aren't you one of Jesus's guys? No way. No. And he walks through the door. Strike one. Once he's inside the courtyard, Peter finds his way to a fire. It's a low burning fire. There's only charcoal. There's not a lot of flames, not a lot of light. And he sits around this fire right next to the guards that were just the ones to carry Jesus into the courtyard. And it's a risky place to be. These guys are breaking down their great mission to capture the rebel Jesus. And Peter can't say anything. He has to act as a bystander. He wants to help Jesus. He wants to be there. He just doesn't know how. But he knows that if he's not close, he can't do anything. And so he stays and he's kind of quiet. And we read in John that another servant girl comes up to Peter. And this one was actually related to the servant of the high priest whose ear got cut off. His name was Malchus. And she points at Peter and he's, she says, wait a minute, you were with him. You're the, in fact, you're the one that swung the sword and cut off my uncle's ear. He's fine, by the way. He can hear better than ever. He turns to her and he says, I don't know him. Go back to your Snapchats, little girl. You don't have a clue. She goes away. Still trying to figure this out. She talks to some others. She points at Peter. I I know that's him, right? Strike two. About an hour later, another final confrontation. Somebody comes up. You were with him. You were one of his disciples. You were in the garden. We have witnesses. Even your accent is giving you away. You are a Galilean. There's no other reason you would be here. And Mark tells us in his gospel that with curses, and you can hear the passion and in Peter's voice, with curses. I swear to God, cursing and cussing and filth and foul, I do not know this man. And he emphatically denied ever being with or knowing Jesus. Strike three. The thing that is capable of tripping the trigger of sin in us is usually smaller than we think. For Peter... All it took was a little servant girl and her accusation. And I guarantee as he's walking through that gate at the very first of the night, he brushed off that first denial as meaningless, as insignificant. And how little it takes for us to cross a line that we swore to God just hours before that we would never cross. Failure lies in what we overlook as insignificant. Because in that moment, 
after those explicit curses and the third denial, two things happen. Number one, you know, off in the distance somewhere, a rooster crows twice. The second one is this. It's chilling. Look at verse 61 of Luke chapter 22. Luke says, because of how the courtyard would have been laid out, that the beaten, chained, bruised, probably punched in the face Jesus, maybe bloodied, maybe with a broken nose, that Jesus was able to look straight into the eyes of Peter. They were that close, and Peter in that moment knew that Jesus was right. Peter had denied his king, just as Jesus predicted. In verse 62, there's no surprise here. Peter runs off into the dark, broken and weeping. Have you ever been there? I swear, Jesus, I will never do that. You can count on me. I love you too much to go there. I love you too much to say that. I love you too much to let that into my life. That's what Peter said. And then he tried his best to stand up for Jesus. He follows the crowd. He calculates how he can benefit Jesus and maybe rescue him. And as he's wrapped up in this valiant effort and trying to devise a plan amidst a people trying to discover who he might be, he lies to keep himself under the radar. And before he knows it, rooster. Even the worst of our sin can have a good motivation behind it. Failure lies within even the best of intentions. Because we, we want to do noble things. We want the right outcomes. We want the team to win like Peter. But, but we sometimes end up in sin and mistakes even with those good intentions behind our actions. How does that happen? It's pretty simple. I want you to write this down. It's not in your notes. It's a great line. Good motivations don't protect you from bad decisions. Good motivations don't protect you from bad decisions. The thing that was unmanageable and unimaginable to Peter in the upper room is now out of his grasp. The cat is out of the bag in the darkness of the courtyard. And he had good motives, but one of his problems was that Peter found himself in the wrong company. Do you remember where he was at? When he went into the courtyard, where he sat, he sat at the fire, surrounded by enemies of Jesus. And we can find ourselves there too. And it can lead to devastating decisions for our life. Whoever you're around the campfire with will ultimately determine the choices you make in life. I've heard the rule of thumb go this way, that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so the question is, Who's around the fire with you? And are those people around the fire, will they lead you to confess Christ or will they lead you more to denying Him? Some of us in the room might need to find another fire to sit at. Peter failed. He was around the wrong fire. He was overconfident. He overlooked what was right under his nose. He had the best intentions. He had the best in mind, but at the end of the day, he failed. He ran off weeping, broken guilt, shame, embarrassment. But that's not the end of the story. Let me show you why it's not. And this is the encouragement for all of us today. It's found in verse 32 of chapter 22. And it's, the, it's Jesus talking to Peter Long before he had done any of these things, he's saying to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but 
I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Do you notice the prayer? Notice what it's not. It's not, Peter, I've prayed that you will not fail. That's not the prayer. The prayer is, Peter, I've prayed that your faith will not fail. It kind of implies to us that although we don't want to seek it out, failure is kind of inevitable in our lives. So the important thing is that our faith be strong. And the main point that we learned from Peter is that failure doesn't have to be final. God has factored in enough time in His will for us to fail and to recover and still finish the things that God intended for us to do on the earth. And it's the faith that gives us the right attitude when we fail. Faith is what leads us back to Jesus instead of farther away from Him. Peter had faith. There was somebody else around the table that failed that day. Actually, all of his disciples scattered and fleed. But there was one. There was one who forgot to take his faith with him. His name was Judas. Simon will end up finding Peter. And he will become the rock again because of faith. But Judas... Judas falls to that ultimate deception of failure. The ultimate lie that failure will tell you is that there's no way out, that you are done, your life is over, even God won't take you back right now. There is no one you can turn to right now. And Judas bought that lie. And it led him to the noose on the end of a rope. Faith tells us something different. Faith tells us, stop running. Just turn back to Jesus. Faith leads you to repentance. Faith leads you to restoration. And that's why Jesus prays for Peter's faith. And not only can God forgive us, but God can use us because of what we've done. In spite of what we've done, even the thing that caused our downfall, God can use. What's the second half of that prayer? Uh, Here's the point. Failure doesn't have to be final. Now go back to that scripture for me. The second half of of the prayer is, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. I, brothers, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, use this for good from now on. Here's the and then moment. You failed. And then your faith can lead you to great things. Your lowest pit of failure is often your highest platform for doing great things for God. The things that have embarrassed you the most, maybe the thing that keeps someone else, maybe that's the thing that keeps someone else in the room from giving up. Maybe. You know exactly where you went off track with your marriage. Maybe you know exactly, you can look back and you say, oh, it was that credit card that led me off off the cliff when it comes to money. Maybe you can look back and it was that decision that led to my addiction. Maybe you can look back 
And you, you, there's tons of things that you would do differently if you could parent again. Maybe you look back in your life and sexually there were decisions I wish I could go back and change. And you've processed those failures. You've worked through them. You've built boundaries into your life so that you're not perfect, but you are better. And you have a perspective that needs to be shared. And you're in a spot that can help others avoid those mistakes that you went through. Use your lowest lows. When you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. Because somebody in these walls needs your story. The final proof that failure is never final is why we come to the table today around communion. Jesus laid down his life and he laid down his life willingly for us. He chose to go to a cross where he would be the embodiment of failure. We have this scripture that's kind of interesting. The scripture says that Jesus was slain even from the foundation of the world. What does that imply? One of the things that implies to us is that Jesus's life would be a failure. Every failure from first to last, my failure, your failure, every sin and mistake throughout history was laid on Jesus and death was the penalty he paid for failure. But I want you to see what God does with that ultimate failure because failure is never final. It doesn't have to be final. God takes the ultimate failure of his son, Jesus, and brings about resurrection and life and victory. And if you wanted to make an argument for the greatest failing in the, in the history of the world, I don't know that we could make a, a better argument than the greatest failure of human beings in, hist- in the history of the planet was that we killed God's son when he came to visit. That's a fail, epic fail. And yet, God turns this great failure, this failure of all failures into the victory of all victories for us. It is most of all the cross that tells us over and over every time we get around the table to share in this supper together that failure is not final. And if he can turn Jesus's failure around, then what can he do with your little measly mistake? What can he do with my failings? In these emblems that the church has shared for 2,000 years, we have reenacted and remembered Jesus' death, and this celebration that we have together every week reminds us of all the things that happened on this night that we've covered. It reminds us of Peter's denial of Jesus' death, of the joy of resurrection three days later, and the hope of Peter's reinstatement. And the Lord's Supper then becomes a Christian celebration. We celebrate that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, our failures aren't final. And even more than that, that they can be the source of our greatest contributions to his kingdom. I'm going to ask Kevin Addington to come, and Kevin is going to pray for our communion here in a second. And there are stations around the room, and as we sing our final uh, three songs, we want you to take some of that worship time and find a station next to you and take communion. You don't have to do it right away. You have plenty of time. There's three songs. Do it when you're ready, okay? But as you take communion, I want to ask you to do two things. Number one, remember 
that God redeemed us through His Son on the cross. That Jesus' sacrifice has made sinners into saved people. That's why we pass these emblems. That's why we share in them. And number two, I want you to ask God to redeem your failures. Ask God to make your pits into platforms for His good and for His glory by the same power that He defeated sin. He can take your failures and bring great things from them.